0: on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who ministers to us the power and presence of God. We're going to do one more week after today. We'll be finished after today, uh, after next week rather. We're going to talk next week about the Spirit's ministry to the church collectively and the way that He gifts us and unites us together to be a dwelling place for God, wherein we use those gifts for His glory and our mutual edification, and then we will return to Acts, and then we'll also spend time soon after that for Holy Week, both talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday Easter. So that's where we're going for the next few weeks. The series ended up being a little longer than I intended. It was drawn out of our study of Acts, wherein we see the Spirit again and again at work, And His work is often to us a bit mysterious, even 2,000 years onward, where we don't fully understand who He is and what He did. As I dug into this more, I felt like because we've never done a more full discussion of the person work of the Spirit, and may not return to this soon, in a recap of this, it would be good for us to be as thorough as we can. So that's why we've gone a little longer than I originally intended. I want us to really understand The third person of the Trinity, this is a noble and and practical endeavor as well. Not only is He our God, but He is integral to the work of newness, to restoration, both initially in making us God's own and in transforming us until Jesus returns and completes His work of restoration. So, both from the sense of theological understanding and worship, we must understand the Spirit But also practically each day, if we want to please God and find our hearts, our souls happy in Him, the person and work of the Spirit is integral to this. So we will continue today. Some of you are artists. You're able to take things like clay or even wood and make things out of them. I'm not really very good at this. I have a dream that when I get older, I'm going to pick up two things. I'm going to pick up golf, uh, so that means I'm going to need lessons because I swing a golf club like I swing a baseball bat, and that's not good when you're on the golf course. Uh, and I was an okay athlete when I was a kid. I wasn't spectacular. Nobody was beating down my door to give me a scholarship or anything, but I was okay. But when I get on the golf course, um, I, I feel like a total idiot, so I'll shoot like 120 on the whole of eight, uh, 18 holes, which is really bad. You golfers know that. Um, So that's one of my aspirations that one day uh, when I'm older that I'll golf. Probably this will be after all of our kids are gone, which now that I have another four-year-old is going to be forever. Um, So maybe Whitney and I will pick that up together. I also have another aspiration, and that is I would like to have a wood shop someday. So this goes back to my eighth grade year in middle school when I took industrial tech. I don't know what they call it anymore. Uh, For slang, we called it shop. So for like half the year, you took home ec. And basically, in home ec, you learned how to sew, and you learned how to make fajitas or something like that. But then the second half of the year, we took shop. And in shop, I made an apple-shaped cutting board, which had alternating slats of oak and walnut. The truth of the matter is, I didn't really finish it. My dad finished it. But I did make another thing, and that was a bat. So Mr. McLaughlin, who was my shop teacher, had a lathe. Which is this machine that has two knobs on the end, and you stick a piece of wood in, it and it goes really, really fast. And you take these little wood uh, metal tools, and you stick it on the piece of wood as it turns, and it shapes it. So you can make lamps and things like that on the lathe. I made a baseball bat because I was into baseball at the time. It turns out when I was finished, my baseball bat weighed about fifty ounces, which was like bigger than Babe Ruth swung, and so it was very impractical. Um, my baseball bat was mine, though. And so I took my dad's Dremel, for those of you who like to work with tools, a Dremel is a little tool that you can use to carve and all kinds of shape and sand and so forth. And I took my dad's Dremel and I I made an oval logo on my wooden bat, which of course, you know, came from my experience with Louisville Slugger and so forth. And then, uh, so after I made my oval with my dad's Dremel, which started to really hum and started to smoke, which was not a good sign, I I wrote Leeville Slugger in it. I thought that was a clever play on words, I'm not that clever and uh, maybe the date that I did it, um, I ruined my dad's Dremel in the process, which he was not happy about. My dad loved his tools. But um, as payment for my misdeed, I gave him my bat. And to this day, my dad has kept my bat. It was mine. I made it. I worked relatively hard on it. I ruined tools to make it. And now it was mine to give away, and that's what I did. It belonged to me. In a sense, though it's a little trite, we belong to God in every way, and He made us for a certain purpose. Like a sculptor makes things out of clay or marble, or a woodworker makes things out of various species of wood, God took clay, dust, and formed it into humans, men and women. And He breathed into us the breath of life. He designed us in His image for a purpose. And beyond the giraffes and the aardvarks and the oak trees and the oceans and all the seashores of the world, we were the ones that were the chief pinnacle of His creation, for we were created in His very image. Now, God is not physical. We don't have noses and ears, and eyes because God has those physical features. God is a spirit. But God gave us eyes so that we could see and think and reason, for God is rational. And God gave us a soul, the internal part of us, so that we could feel and so that we could desire and so that we could choose. God made us in His image, which means that we're like Him in so very Many ways. Last week we saw that the Spirit renews us through, first, new birth. We saw this in John chapter 3. Call this regeneration. We will not come to God of our own accord. We cannot, we will not. Spirit sovereignly blows on us like the wind that Jesus likens him to and makes us his own. Not only this, the Spirit renews us through sealing. We belong to God. And the work of redemption will be completed one day. It is sure we are His property. Thirdly, the Spirit renews us through adoption. We who were the enemies of God, amazingly, have been made the sons and daughters of God. The gospel is a gospel of wonder. Why would God treat enemies in such a fashion? And we saw at the end that we are renewed through image. Restoration, which is what we're going to talk about today. The Spirit is at work in us progressively to restore us into the image of God. We took time at the beginning of this series in the Spirit to look back at what God did in the Old Testament through His Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters and forming things out of formlessness. In this same chapter, we find the record of God making man in His image. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, the humans, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God made man to glorify Himself, to display Himself to the world, particularly to each other. God warned the humans to not break His law, for they belong to Him. He made them for His own glory and for His purposes. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And what did Adam and Eve do with that one law? We know that they broke it. Paul comments on this in Romans chapter 3 when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, last week this thing overheated and turned off. We tried to fix that. And for some reason it does again. um, Somebody like wave your hand at me. Don't yell at me because I'll get scared. But let me know so I'll see if I can fix it, okay? So what happened when humanity fell? There's a sense to which the image of God, though remaining, was marred. It was tweaked, it was was changed, so that when you see a human now, a human that's able to reason like God reasons and feel like God feels, to have affections and desires as God does, all those things in some way are, are short of God's perfections. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They they fell short of the perfections. The image of God was, was marred in them, though not eradicated. What would God do about this? He promised a Redeemer. And then eventually, He formed for Himself a people. As you read the next chapters in Genesis, by and large, humanity was marked by miserable failure. At one point, it was so bad that God wiped the world clean with a flood. But not long after that, they were back at their evil ways, and God decided that He wasn't just going to generally deal with people, He was going to deal with specific people. So, He calls a pagan to Himself named Abraham and makes promises to him that through him He will build a nation, and eventually through that nation bless the world. That nation would eventually grow into a large people in captivity, in a place called Egypt. God would free them from their captivity through a leader named Moses, and then lead them out of that place of bondage through the seas of judgment, the Red Sea, in which they would be saved, but the the army of Pharaoh would be crushed. He then led them out to a place called Sinai where He gave them a covenant and promised them that He would give them a land and laws whereby they could know Him and honor Him and glorify Him. In Leviticus chapter 11, God gives Israel laws about what they're to eat and not eat. Now, some of the things they're not supposed to eat, we would say, are gross. Insects, for instance. They were allowed to eat locusts, which is interesting, but most insects they were not allowed to eat that makes sense, right, because insects are gross. They were not allowed to eat lizards, even specific lizards like monitor lizards. They were not allowed to eat such things. They weren't allowed to eat hawks or rock badgers, whatever those were. There were some really good things they were not allowed to eat, so it makes me glad that I didn't live 3,000 years or so ago. They were not allowed to eat bacon. You're pretty familiar with that. They were also not allowed to eat shrimp, which means they were not allowed to eat bacon-wrapped shrimp, which was even a bigger problem. But in Leviticus chapter 11, God tells them why all these things, some of them seemingly arbitrary, were so. God says through Moses, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, things they couldn't eat. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Some of the things that they weren't allowed to eat make sense. Some of the things they weren't allowed to eat didn't make a lot of sense. But God was trying to teach them about distinctions. Some of the things were quite dirty. Some of the things were sort of conceptually dirty. They crawled around in the mud or wallowed in it. What God is saying is, you're my people. You shouldn't be like anyone else. Naturally, in your hearts, you are separate from me. You have been soiled because of sin. But I have brought you out of Egypt to make you my own. And even in the way that you eat, you should show distinction. There were other seemingly arbitrary things. They couldn't have garments that had mixed fabrics. The men were not allowed to round off the corners of their beard. They weren't allowed to groom their beards. Why? It seems fashionable in our day and age for men to wear beards, even sort of bushy ones. Super fashionable if you wear a bushy beard and flannel most of the time. Back in that day, they would have been seen as unholy. Why? Because their Canaanite neighbors with whom they were eventually going to live in the same environs, they did that. They rounded off the corners of their beards. They groomed their facial hair. And what God is saying is, I don't even want you to look like them because in everyday life, even in what you eat and how you groom yourself, I want you to know that you are mine. You are to be different. So, what God did with Israel was to teach them that they were to be holy. He was going to make them holy. But the problem was, all the laws given at Sinai could not make them holy. Those laws just showed them that they weren't. And so, eventually, as we learned several weeks ago, the prophets teach the people that one day something will happen that will be more than just external. There won't just be laws that hang over their heads and Call them to repentance from their evil ways. In Ezekiel chapter 11, the prophet says, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in My statutes and keep My rules and obey them and they shall be My people and I will be their God. It wouldn't be merely external laws hanging over their heads teaching them that they weren't holy, calling them to holiness. God would not just call them to holiness reminding them of their evil ways. Instead, He would put His very Spirit inside of them Making them holy. Not just making them His own. Not just restoring the family relationship, but teaching them to walk as family members. To keep the family ways. And this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1. One of the main questions that is asked and then answered in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6 is, Why were we saved? Why were we redeemed? So Paul says, blessed be the father god and father of our lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is the purpose of our redemption. And love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the trajectory of our redemption. It's the purpose. It's the goal. Why did God make humanity in the first place knowing full well that they would break the one law that He gave them? Why did He do this knowing that they would be separated from Him by their own volition, by their own choices? I mean, after all, He made them in His image with rationale and volition, with the ability to choose. And what did they choose when they were given that freedom? They chose unrighteousness. They chose lawlessness. They chose to, to pursue their own divinity, so to speak. But God didn't leave it that way. He formed for Himself a people, Israel. But because of the external laws that called them to holiness and the powerlessness that the law had, they couldn't change themselves. So God promised that one day He would do something new. He would make a new covenant, better than the covenant that He gave them at Sinai, which would not only call them to repentance, but enable it so that they could be holy and blameless, not just conceptually, not just potentially, not just hypothetically, but actually. And this is why Jesus came. Even our marriages depict this. Husbands, Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that, purpose statement, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's why Christ rescued us. Paul also says in Colossians 3, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. What is God doing through the redemption of Jesus Christ? Restoring the marred image. Making us new entirely. My friends, this is the purpose of redemption, to restore us to the original design. Sinclair Ferguson on his book, In the Spirit, says this, Christ's likeness is the end in view. Sanctification is the transformation that produces it. Now, I am the Lord who sanctifies you, Old Testament promise, becomes I am Jesus who by my Spirit will transform you into my likeness. Be holy because I am holy. Leviticus 11. Means now, you belong to God's family. Jesus Christ is your elder brother. His Spirit dwells in you, enabling you to follow in His footsteps. Be like Him. Holiness is likeness. As the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit is the agent of this transformation. So, the Spirit restores us or makes us holy... By, first of all, uniting us to Christ. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John the Baptist is baptizing people near the Jordan. He says, one is coming who is greater than me. He won't just baptize you in water. He'll baptize you with the fire, spirit, which largely was accomplished at Pentecost. But the experience continues for all of God's people now. Look with me, please, in John chapter 17. We learned a couple of weeks ago, as we discussed Jesus and His understanding and promise of the Spirit, that He would not leave His people as orphans, but would come to them. And in John chapters 14 through 16, Jesus promises the Helper, the Comforter, who will come to God's people and minister on His behalf and to them, uniting them to Himself. In John chapter 17, right before He will be arrested in John chapter 18 and led away for His condemnation and crucifixion, Jesus prays in front of His disciples. This is kind of like Moses at the burning bush. This is, this is holy ground when the disciples got to hear this prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father here in John 17, but prays out loud so the apostles, the disciples at this point could hear it. He says something very interesting in verses 15 through 21. You can follow along with me if you have your Bibles open to John 17. The beloved Son says to His Father in heaven, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, speaking of the disciples, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus knew full well the danger that they would soon face. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He was from heaven, and they had been born again from heaven by the Spirit sanctify them, this means to set them apart to yourself, make them holy, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus is willing to go through the work of the atonement to make them one with the Trinity. I do not ask, verse 20, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There has never been a prayer that Jesus prayed that the Father did not answer, and this prayer would have been answered in the affirmative. These promises have been granted not only to the original disciples, but to us as well. And so, the one who John the Baptist says would baptize with the Spirit, has baptized us with that Spirit to bring us into union with Himself. And look with me please in Romans chapters 5-8, through eight. I assure you that we will not exposit explain these chapters in full detail. We would be here for weeks. We did this a few years ago as we talked through the book of Romans, but I want to highlight a few things so we will see them for what they are and to also encourage some further study. Paul condemns all of humanity or explains the condemnation of all of humanity in Romans chapters 1 through 3, but also in chapter 3 makes a transition That all who have fallen short of the glory of God may be brought back into conformity to the glory of God by Jesus as they trust Him. Receiving the righteousness which we desperately need if we will be acquitted. I did not say this to the kids earlier during the children's sermon, but my gavel that I have, um, I don't just have it on a whim. It was given to me by a pastor friend of mine uh, on this little fake brass piece that goes around the top there is the inscription, the verdict is in. I keep this on my desk most of the time, and when I'm feeling pretty guilty that I still fall so short of the glory of God, I grab this and hold it, sometimes while I work, to remind myself that I am not condemned because of Christ. And it's not because I'm good, it's because I've trusted Jesus. And so, in Romans chapter 4, Paul extends the conversation by saying, But this is the way it's always been. Even Abraham wasn't justified by being good, but by faith. Then he comes to chapter 5, where he explains that there is a second Adam that has come along, the, the old Adam, the one who sinned in the garden. We've already talked about him today. The one fashioned after the image of God who fell into sin and condemnation. Every human that has lived since then is in Adam and condemned, but there's a second Adam that has come. And if we are in him, we need not fear condemnation or judgment, for the righteousness of Jesus can be ours by faith. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, if you'd like to look with me, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Reconciliation. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Make them one as we are one. And even while they live in this dangerous world, they are not of this world, for they've been born again of the Spirit, brought into union with us. So sanctify them, set them apart for yourself, both positionally, they now belong to your family, and progressively, experientially, make them your own, progressively over time. Theologically, we call this sanctification. To be made more holy progressively over time. So there is a sense to which we have been sanctified in God's presence finally. God sees us as His own. And that that judgment is in. The gavel has fallen. The verdict is in on us. So that one day when Jesus returns, we need not fear condemnation. We belong to Him positionally. That's true of us. That's our identity. But in this life, we still sin. We often don't live according to the family values. We don't keep all the family rules. We who have been brought to God through adoption still don't live like He wants us to live all the time. Those of you who have adopted or those of you who foster or those of you who have had biological children know this to be the case. The values that you have in your home, your children often very often, do not live up to them. But, but we don't either as grown-ups. It's interesting that in John's first epistle, 1 John, he calls his audience little children seven times. And he wasn't talking to little kids, he was talking to the grown-ups. As little children, we are dear to God, but we still sin. So what has He done? He has sanctified us and is sanctifying us and has done so through the Spirit who has made us new and is making us new, this Holy Spirit who ministers God's sanctifying love to us. Look with me in chapter 6. In light of chapter 5, which teaches us that we are no longer under condemnation, that our trespasses will not be held against us. A logical argument would be should we keep sinning so that God's grace might shine all the brighter? This grace which covers our sin and pardons the sinners. What's Paul's response? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. May it never be said so. May it never be. How have the baptism of death and then the raising up to resurrection, how does Jesus' baptism into death and resurrection been appropriated by us? How has it been credited to us? Well, it's by the Spirit. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. The Holy Spirit has been granted to our hearts. It's the answer to the prayer of John 17. This one who baptizes with the Spirit, this one who prays that we will be one with the Father, Is the same one who promised that we would not be left as orphans. And this would be accomplished through the coming of the Spirit. So Paul is arguing in Romans chapter 6 that we have not just been freed from condemnation, but we've been freed experientially so that we don't have to serve sin. So we have been freed from sin's penalty, Romans chapter 5. And Romans chapter 6 we have been freed from sin's power. Look with me in verse 12, Romans chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. He likens sinfulness to a king, to an evil emperor. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is the promise of the new covenant, promise of the new covenant that we saw earlier in Ezekiel chapter 11. So we're freed from sin's penalty, Romans 5, we're freed from sin's power, Romans chapter 6, but the problem is the presence of sin still remains. There's three P's there for those of you who like alliteration. Penalty done away with. The burden is in on us if we've trusted Jesus. Power, we don't have to serve sin. But its presence is still with us, so we do sometimes. And then he goes into chapter 7, and he teases out this issue of the presence of sin and his struggle with it. Christians for centuries now have wondered whether Romans chapter 7 references a Christian who struggles with sin or a person who is not yet a Christian who needs Jesus to be freed from sin's penalty and power and presence. It's probably not the right way to frame the argument. In other words, is this a pre-converted person or a post-converted person? I think the answer is yes. Paul's argument in Romans chapter 7 is essentially this. The law cannot make us positionally holy. The law cannot take care of the penalty of sin. Likewise, the law cannot take care of sin's power. That is why at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul says, verse 17, So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is true for people before conversion and after. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. We felt that before we came to Jesus in faith, and we feel it now. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, verse 20, when I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The presence of sin is still with us, even after conversion, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That sounds bleak, but there's hope in Christ, and because there weren't chapter divisions in Paul's letter to the Roman church, we come right into chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. These words which we read to your children earlier are now applicable for their parents. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit set the mind in the flesh is death, but to set the mind in the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God, or does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's Romans 7. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you... Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's how we are united to Christ in the baptism of death and resurrection, the beginning of Romans chapter 6. It's through His Spirit. This is the fulfillment of of Ezekiel chapter 11, that it wouldn't just be external laws condemning us. That's Romans 7. Can we we be righteous enough through moral effort to make God pleased with us? Can the penalty of sin be removed from us? Can condemnation be removed from us if we just work hard enough? And the answer is no. And then even after we come to Christ, wanting to do well, but still living with the presence of sin, even though its power has been eradicated, How can we live for the glory of God? How can the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 be fulfilled? That we would be sanctified to God, both positionally and progressively over time. How? It's not going to be by the law. And by the way, the law is holy and righteous and good, Paul says in Romans chapter 7. For it shows us that we are bad. We, We need that. Before the good news can be appreciated, the bad news must be clear. So how do we deal with this presence of sin? The God who made all things, creating us in His image for His glorious purposes and sent His Son to take our place and rescue us. They together have sent the Spirit to live inside of us and to make us new. This means that from beginning to end, from before the foundation of the world until the story is wrapped up, that God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are graciously at work to sanctify us and restore the image and to bring us back to the garden. And even better, that we will live with Him in fullness where there's not even the potential for sin in the coming age. And that's why verse 12, Paul goes on in Romans 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Spirit restores us, makes us holy by uniting us to Christ. This is the gracious work of God on our behalf. The Spirit restores us or makes us holy, secondly, by transforming us degree by degree. Look with me, please, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The apostles writing to the church in Corinth, still upset with them for their behavior. In this case, their rejection of him. There had been opponents come in that had infiltrated their midst and convinced them that they should stand in opposition to Paul. He writes them a letter and encourages them to repent and tells them that it's going to be okay, that they belong to Christ, and he is pleased primarily with how they later have repented. So, he says in chapter 3, this guy who spent 18 months, I believe, in Corinth planting this church, they were dear to him, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, 2 Corinthians 3.1, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Others had infiltrated, as I just said, their midst, and Paul said, you know me. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You are dear to us and we have been part and parcel of your transformation. And you show, verse 3, that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human art. This is not just an external law with the hypothetical possibility of righteousness and holiness. This has really happened. The Spirit has broken in. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, this is a reference to the Mosaic law, came with such glory that the Israelites should not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? When Moses would fellowship with God, his face would glow and it freaked the people out because it reminded them that they weren't holy. The Holy One of Eternity dwelt in their midst, and they weren't holy, and it scared them. So Moses would wear a veil over his face so they wouldn't be so freaked out. Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, when Moses communed with God in the giving of the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The promise of the new covenant. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, Mosaic law, much more will what is permanent have glory. This is a lesser to greater argument. Then verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away or separated from God. The image has been marred and not restored through the law. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That was still their condition. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The promise of the new covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. He prays to the Father that His followers, then and now, will be sanctified to themselves. How does He do that? Positionally. We saw this last week. We call this regeneration. We are born again, made new by the Spirit, and sealed and adopted. But it's not just positional. It's not just a one-time event. It's an ongoing experience. The law which stood over Israel, reminding them of how they weren't holy, but that they should be holy, it couldn't make them holy. That's Romans 7. So what has God done? Romans 8. He's given us His Spirit. So from beginning to end, we are transformed, renewed, saved by God, God the Father, God the Son, and in this place, the Lord who is the Spirit, God as well, He transforms us from one degree of glory to another. This means that we who used to lie, probably in some way or another, still struggle with Dishonesty. But if the Spirit has indwelled us for any period of time, we're probably less dishonest than we used to be. We who formerly were racked by lust at this stage in life are most of us, experientially, less lustful than we once were. We who were greedy are less greedy and, and so forth and so on. You get the idea. I remember when I was a young guy, in my teenage years, and then into college and seminary. I got to preach from time to time. I was an intern at a church during seminary, and, you know, I was learning a lot. I had a decent bit of Bible and theology under my belt, and so whenever I got to preach, which was very occasionally, I, I liked to show it off. I wanted people to know I was smart. I wanted people to know that I had a grasp on things, and it's not as though I just got up in the The pulpit and and preach things without praying. I did. I I tried to to be a humble person, but I remember one of the elders that was over me in my internship that uh, he said to me, actually he didn't say to me, he said through another elder, which actually kind of stung and hurt, I don't recommend that, that uh, I had good content, but that I I portrayed it, I I preached it in kind of a cocky way. I'll never forget that. Never since then I, I realized that if I was going to be able to help people that's why I do what I do. That was going to have to pursue humility. So if you were to ask me now at the age of 41, 20 years onward or so, are you a humble person? My answer would have to be no. Am I pursuing it? I think so. I think I'm not who I was. What will I be like at the age of 61? If the promises of the Bible are true, that the Spirit is transforming me from one degree of glory to another... I'll be less prideful then than I am now. I'm not who I was, but I'm not who I want to be. This means that we should be grateful. You who struggle with greed, pride, and lust, and a host of other vices, be grateful that you weren't who you were. Here's a little pastoral, applicational recommendation. It's really hard sometimes for us to see our own progress. But as we live in, in metaphorical proximity toward one another, I mean, if you'd like to move in next door to each other, more power to you, but most of us aren't going to do that. But we should live in, in relational proximity toward each other. This is why things like men's and women's studies and small group and discipleship are so important. So that as we see each other grow, we should tell each other. If you see a person becoming less prideful over the years, tell them. That will encourage them. And then you both can glorify God in gratitude. And then we struggle together in relational proximity that we will not be in the future who we are now. There's a clever little story which has been credited to Michelangelo. It's Really, not true. It was brought together perhaps in the 19th century or so, but it is said that a young man came to Michelangelo and they were gazing together at his statue of David, a masterpiece of art still to this day. And the young man said to Michelangelo, How did you create such a magnificent sculpture? And if you know the story, Michelangelo said, I just knocked off all the stuff that didn't look like David. Now, again, Michelangelo didn't really say that, but that's kind of what our sanctification is like. What we look like in the end. We didn't read these verses today, but I did recommend that you go back to Romans chapters 5 through 8 and see the work of the Spirit on our behalf. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that in the end, that we will all look like Christ. We will be presented to Him as trophies and we will look like Him. That's that's what he's doing now. That's why pride is being chipped away with his chisel and hammer. That's why greed is being knocked off. That's why lust is being blown away. Because in the end, God has a purpose in our redemption. Not just that we will hypothetically look like him one day, but that we definitely will. Now, we must, we must submit to this. Look with me, please, in Galatians chapter 5. Paul's already said in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, that the new covenant that has been brought to us is a covenant brought about by the Spirit. We won't take time to look through those verses today. I encourage you to read Galatians 3 through 5 in their entirety. But here in chapter 5, Paul says, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, or keep in step with the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That sounds like Romans 7. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What are some of the old ways that we used to live? Verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and so forth and so on. Some of the things you didn't do, some of the things you still do. Me too. Me too. But verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Again, this link between the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. The Spirit has united us to Christ and is transforming us degree by degree. You cannot make yourself holy. This is the work of the Spirit, but you must walk in the Spirit. So I say to all of you, and to myself, young and old alike, that the promise of Jesus, that He prayed to the Father, prayer and promise, John 17, they will be fulfilled in us. By the grace of God, we will be brought to full image restoration in the end. God will get the credit, for He has done it all. But in the here and now, we together as a collective people of God are to live for His glory, the purpose of our redemption, the reason we were transformed, so we will no longer be marked by the old way, but by the new. This will not come about by by just moral imperative, by moral effort, but by God's Spirit at work in us. He's doing the transforming, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, degree by degree, and we submit to it by walking in the Spirit. This is simple but not easy. Simply, we must know the truth. So we read our Bibles. Not because we have to, but because in it we see the grace of God on display and what He wants us to do with our lives. And then we pray. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we pray without ceasing. Because every moment of every day, we are struggling between these two options. To to gratify the desires of the flesh, but because the power of sin has been broken, instead we want to gratify our Savior to bring glory to Him. This is why we have been saved and we are not left alone. God, the Holy Spirit, will bring about the fullness of redemption for us as we submit to Him. And so I call all of us to that. May God be praised for what He has done for us by His Spirit, and may He be pleased by our ever-increasingly transformed lives, for His glory and our mutual joy. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are grateful that You have united us.